Here on the ground, change happens fast. Problems feel frequent and urgent. It's loud and anxiety runs high. From a satellite view, the Earth looks the same as it did thousands of years ago. We've been here before. Let's learn from our past and shoot for a better future. Hello and welcome to A Satellite View. I'm Todd Mickelson speaking at you from Friday, January 13th, 2023. The things people are primarily talking about today is the fact that yesterday, Attorney General Merrick Garland assigned a special prosecutor on the case of Joe Biden accidentally being in possession of some classified documents. Sounds like a dozen or less. And the other thing uh, people are talking about, George Santos, the complete liar who is the prime current representative of the Republican Party. More Republicans are coming out, you know, saying that he should resign, but not very many. And Kevin McCarthy clearly wants to keep him just for his vote. It's kind of actually disgusting uh, how the Republican Party is acting toward this. There is a big difference between how Kevin McCarthy's handling it and how, for instance, Speaker Pelosi handled the Anthony Weiner debacle of about 11 years ago. So those are the things that people are primarily talking about today, but I want to point out something that I find very interesting, that there's just always so much going on. Again, I call it the... Uh, fire hose of poop, because I'm trying to clean up my language. Maybe I should say the fire hose of feces, the feces fire hose, that we lose track. There's just so much coming at us that we lose track of a lot of important stories. Now, here's something that is currently not really being paid attention to right now. Going back in history a few years in Atlanta, Georgia, Standardized test scores in Atlanta public schools were going up, but the explanation in dozens of schools was not necessarily that the students were learning more. Investigators found that teachers were systematically cheating, motivated by incentives to demonstrate improved results. Tafani Willis, a prosecutor in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, it was a criminal conspiracy on a vast scale. Using Georgia's expansive anti-racketeering law, a statute traditionally used against drug dealers, gang leaders, and mafia figures, she and her colleagues won guilty pleas from 21 educators and the convictions of 11 others in 2015 for accepting bonuses and other rewards while students suffered losing access to remedial education. The episode, which ended with teachers and administrators sentenced to prison, continues to divide the city. Now, Fawny Willis is considering using that racketeering statute in another sprawling, politically treacherous investigation. So, uh, can probably guess which one this is. I'm reading from a Washington Post article, by the way, written by Tom Hamburger, Matthew Brown, and Anne Marimau. The question this time is whether a former president, Donald Trump, conspired with his allies to break the law and attempt to overturn the 2020 election. 
Fawnie Willis is now Fulton County's district attorney, finds herself at the center of an inquiry with the potential to make history and influence the course of the next presidential vote. A special grand jury, convened as part of the investigation, has completed its work. They submitted a report that could include recommendations for charges. The judge scheduled a January 24th hearing to determine whether to release the report publicly. The grand jury has recommended that it should be released publicly. Fawnie Willis could file charges in the case in the coming weeks. Willis launched her investigation after reports that Trump called the Georgia Secretary of State on January 2nd, 2021. Now, you probably know about that call. It's where he asked the uh, Secretary of State to find 11,788 votes. That's all I need, guys. Give me a break. I, I still, it's still unbelievable when I hear about that. I remember first reading about that back after it happened. And uh, just thought, okay, well, here we go. Trump to jail. Those who know Fonnie Willis, they're not surprised. She's aggressively a high-profile pursuit of the case, which has included forcing top-tier Trump insiders to testify before a grand jury and potentially subpoenaing the former president himself. It has prompted criticism that she's exceeded her mandate. The numerous other inquiries into Trump are being pursued by federal and state authorities who have often worked more quietly than the Fulton district attorney. But those who know her well are not surprised. Fonnie Willis's strategy, they say, reflects the nature of a prosecutor who is unafraid to investigate sensitive or seemingly untouchable targets. She's a pit bull said Vince Velasquez. Hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He served for 17 years as a homicide detective in Atlanta, working frequently with Fonnie Willis. He said, if I committed a crime, I would not want to be prosecuted by Fonnie Willis. Trump is now in her crosshairs, and it might come down to the next few weeks. Um, we'll find out more on the 24th. Today is the 13th, so week and a half from now, things might be uh, changing quicker. And this is something that nobody's talking about this week. <laughs> Even though it's a historical thing, nobody's really talking about it this week. I am going to talk about what everybody is talking about this week, primarily the debacle going on because there were some classified documents found in possession of the current president, Joe Biden. Here's some other things that are going on that kind of are not being talked about. John Kelly, if you remember him, he was a White House chief of staff under Trump. Can't remember which, was he the second one? I think, yeah. What's his name? Idiot and a half was the first one. I think, I think that was his name. Um, Mulvaney, <laughs> he was the first one. Uh, and then John Kelly came in to try and bring some order to the place. Well, I don't know if he's got a book coming out or something, but he just said, he just revealed yesterday that Donald Trump discussed the idea of dropping a nuclear bomb on North Korea and blaming it on another country. <laughs> oh. My God. 
it, it's not surprising, but it's surprising. You know, that like so much in this uh, fire hose of feces. You knew he was going to do stuff like that. So when you find out he actually did or was thinking of it, it's not a surprise. But the president of the United States discussed the idea of dropping a nuclear bomb on North Korea and blaming it on another country. That's shocking, mind-blowing. Not a surprise, but yet a surprise. And now Trump is actually absolutely losing his mind. By the way, part of, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll do it now because it goes in a couple categories. Trump is losing his mind is an actual story. But this also goes along with the story that I just mentioned about uh, Biden having some classified documents. There are huge differences Differences between uh, the Biden case and the Trump case, because Trump, of course, probably is still holding but held classified documents. Of course, he had like 300 of them and thousands of other uh, papers that were not legally in his possession, whereas Biden has uh, a dozen or less classified documents that were found. He took them inadvertently or somebody took them inadvertently. They It was unintentional. Trump bragged about that he brought the stuff back down to Mar-a-Lago because they're mine, they're mine. And here's another difference. Joe Biden has said that he is fully cooperating with the DOJ and the National Archives. Upon finding out that they were in his possession, he immediately notified both the National Archives and the DOJ, whereas Trump hit him and lied about him. Biden is completely cooperating with his special prosecutor. Here's what Trump wrote about his special prosecutor on his truth central BS fake Twitter setup. And this is just part of what he said. Uh, He wrote this yesterday. The special prosecutor assigned to the get Trump case, Jack Smith. And then a question mark is a Trump-hating thug whose wife is a serial and open Trump hater, whose friends and other family members are even worse. Oh, they're even worse. And as a prosecutor in Europe, according to Rick Grinnell, put a high government official in prison because he was a Trump-positive person, Smith is known as an unfair savage. A savage. That's what he is. So Trump is down there losing his mind. I imagine he wrote it even faster than I said it, he, and he would say it faster, because I think, I think he's in a different state of mind. I think it would be more like, a special prosecutor decided to get the Trump case. Jack Smith is a Trump-hating thug whose wife is Probably is more how it was delivered. What else? Oh, I have so much written down here. Why don't we cover a little bit about George Santos, because there's some just hilarious stuff. And I don't really want to talk about it super long. Um, we have just a couple minutes before we're going to take a sh- very short break. Why don't we get the George Santos thing in here? Kevin McCarthy has been asked about this, and he's, he's so smug to the press. He's just such a... Uh, uh, he, he's a dummy and a half, but he thinks that he's super savvy and smart and on point and... You know, he'll just, he'll walk down the hall, the press will be asking him questions, and he'll just not answer them, or he'll just, like, 
not look at them and just go, no, or something like that. He was asked about the George Santos thing, and he, and he shoves it back in a reporter's face. What has he done wrong? What has he done wrong? And, and then everybody's just sort of standing there looking at him like, what do you mean? What has he done wrong? The entire, uh, what, what's the county he's from? Nassau County. The, the Nassau County uh, GOP chair is saying George Santos is not welcome back to Nassau County, not welcome by the Nassau County GOP, and they don't consider him their representative. This guy went on to say that some of the lies that George Santos told him. So you may know that George Santos has said that he's gone to two different colleges. He's gone to zero colleges in reality. He told this guy, this guy said, oh, yeah, I, I love sports. So then George Santos goes, oh, yeah, me too. I was a volleyball star. I, when I joined the team, uh, we basically won the championship because of me on, uh, I can't remember which school it is, but one of the school's volleyball teams, he said he's a star. He didn't even go to the school. <laughs> uh, I thought that was pretty hilarious. But Kevin McCarthy, just he just needs George Santos for the numbers. Again, back uh, 11, 12 years ago with the Anthony Weiner case, who was a Democrat, Nancy Pelosi was not Speaker of the House, but she was the leader of the Democratic Party in the House. She basically, when this news came out about Anthony Weiner sending sexts, which was a brand new term, sexting, underage girls, apparently, when the news came out about that, Nancy Pelosi basically said, meet me in my office. He went in her office. She spoke to him for a short period of time. He came out of her office and he resigned. Kevin McCarthy's not even calling George Santos into his office to discuss anything. <laughs> Another thing George Santos came out this week, his campaign manager allegedly impersonated McCarthy's chief of staff to raise funds for his campaign. I mean, that's serious crime. That's a serious crime. The GOP knows that Santos is their new actual mascot. He's their real mascot. The Nassau County GOP chair said that he has disgraced the House of Representatives. And that's true. He has. But the Republican Party is not going to do anything about it. They're sticking up for him. There's a handful coming out saying he should resign right away. But, you know, not enough. Most Republicans are kind of, you know, trying to avoid it or sticking up for him. The thing is, is that this is not going to go away until George Santos goes away. George Santos is going to be chased throughout the halls by cameras and reporters for as long as he's there. And Kevin McCarthy is going to be asked about it every day for as long as George Santos is there. So bring it on. I mean, it's great for the Democratic Party. They're just killing themselves. I mean, I can't. The Republican Party in the House right now. Uh, uh, we'll go we'll go more into that. Uh, what went on this week in the House of Representatives their first, actually their second, but really their first. Uh, it's just, yeah. Let's take a break. You're listening to A Satellite View with Todd Mickelson. We'll be right back.
actually delayed a little bit. I'm now speaking to you from January 16th, 2023. My daughter uh, was just at the end of her winter break, and she went to the airport yesterday. She's back in New York, Brooklyn, at uh, Pratt Institute, getting back at it, and so am I. But I, I had to admit, I took a couple days off for her final days here over the weekend. A little bit late in getting back. I'm kind of glad because more developments happened since the time I was going to do this second segment. I want to talk to you a little bit about the debt ceiling. You hear about the debt ceiling every once in a while. You never hear about the debt ceiling when there's a Republican president because Republicans don't like to talk about the debt ceiling when there's a Republican president. They only like to talk about it when there's a Democratic president because they want to you know, throw sand in the gears whenever there's a Democrat president. And of course, now we have Joe Biden. Remember when we were talking about the debt ceiling and had a partial government shutdown uh, almost 10 years ago now? That's because there was a Democratic president then. Didn't hear anyone talk about the debt ceiling when Trump was president. They just kept raising it. Didn't hear anyone talk about the debt ceiling when George W. Bush was president. They just kept raising it. Now, the new development that just happened basically on Friday night, and this is Monday, actually Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Remember, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. A Martin Luther King Jr. quote that I think we need to pay more attention to these days. But moving on. What happened on Friday night, House Republicans are preparing to plan telling the Treasury Department what to do if Congress and the White House don't agree to lift the nation's debt limit later this year, underscoring the brinksmanship newly empowered conservatives will bring to the high-stakes negotiations over averting a U.S. default. The plan, which was previously unreported because Kevin McCarthy's doing things behind closed doors, he's even lying to his own caucus about it, There is a three-page secret deal memo talking about giving more power to crazy... um, Cleaning up my language again. Um, Can we say MFers on a podcast or on the radio? People like Representative Chip Roy from Texas. So Kevin McCarthy's giving people like that more power. Chip Roy's also a leading conservative who helped broker this three-page secret deal that McCarthy's denying exists, not just to the press and the American people, but he's also denying it exists. To his own caucus members, McCarthy agreed to pass a payment prioritization plan by the end of the first quarter of this year. The emerging contingency plan shows how Republicans are preparing to threaten to not lift the nation's debt ceiling without major spending cuts from the Biden administration. This is how they hold us all hostage. In 2013, it went so far as partial government shutdown. Now, Kevin McCarthy's trying to do this thing that he thinks is so clever. He thinks he's super clever. What do you think when your kid has a credit card and goes over the limit? Do you just keep raising the limit or do you tell your kid they need to stop spending? Well, that's not how the debt ceiling works. The debt ceiling is the Treasury Department paying for things we have already borrowed on This is more like just refusing to pay your credit card bill. It's not limiting how much more you can spend on your credit card. Your your credit card company thinks, okay, I don't want to give you more than this much to spend on this credit card because 
you make this much money every year. This is your annual income. I don't think you can afford to pay us more than this. So we're going to set a limit on how much you can use your credit card. Well, raising the debt limit is not the same as raising that credit card limit. This is like you just deciding, okay, I have a credit card with a limit of $2,000. And last week I bought a new guitar that costs $850. And I decided I'm just not going to pay that. I'm not going to pay the credit card for that. I'm going to set my own limit of I'm only going to pay the credit card $400. Well, the credit card company is going to come after you. And your credit rating is going to go down, which happened to the United States because of this Republican brinksmanship. This is the new Republican Party. They, they have jeopardized the credit rating of the United States, and they're wanting to do it again. They want to do it again. In talking about the debt ceiling, I'd like to go through the history. That's what we do here on a satellite view. But when we're doing this, it's not just talking about what the debt limits were changed to and when. Also, we need to consider the difference in the value of a dollar of that period of time in the past compared to now. But also, we need to consider the population of the United States at each of these times as well. For instance, in 1917, we had a population of 100 million people in this country. That's less than a third, quite a bit less than a third of what we have now. So our total amount of money we need to run the country, not to mention we had less infrastructure, you know, it was a whole different period of time. These are all things that need to be considered. So I'm going to go through the history and we're going to keep track of all of those variables as well. The first federal debt limit is set in 1917 at $45 billion. This gives the Treasury Department wide discretion over that borrowing so long as total debt does not exceed that level. It was set at $45 billion. That's the same as $1 trillion in today's dollars. We have 334 million people now. There was 100 million people then. And basically not a whole lot happened until the Second World War. Throughout World War II, Congress raises the debt limit annually to sufficiently cover all borrowing incurred by the war, reaching a peak of $300 billion. $300 billion is the same as $4.57 trillion in today's dollars. And the population in 1946 was 140 million people. By the end of the war in June 1946, the debt limit is lowered to $275 billion as war costs dissipate and the federal government begins to run three years of surpluses. Going back down to $275 billion in 1946 is the equivalent of going to $4.2 trillion in 2023, with about one-third the population that we currently have. The next major thing that happens is when there is a liberal president, although he was a Republican, he knew that spending would help our economy. Increasing jobs, increasing infrastructure, which would help our overall economy. We can travel better. We can deliver goods better. People having jobs means they have money to buy things that businesses are making. So during the Korean War, there were a couple debt increases because of the war. But then what I just described, that was President Eisenhower. By 1957, there was a movement called the Movement Conservative, and they were really mad at Eisenhower. They didn't think he was a Republican. By late 1957 is when the Movement Conservative happened, and that was basically starting to call people like Eisenhower. They didn't use the word rhino back then, but it's the equivalent of how they use that today. 
So in July of 1957, Congress waits to again increase the debt limit as a means to pressure the Eisenhower administration to exercise more fiscal restraint. During this six-month period, the Air Force ceased to pay its bills for a short period of time. So that's what we're talking about. Things they already owned and borrowed in order to own, sort of like your mortgage for your house, the Air Force was unable to pay their bills. Uh, that doesn't look good. We move forward to July 1974. Congress passes the Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act of 1974, creating the modern congressional budget process, including the creation of the Congressional Budget Office. We often refer to this as the CBO. The law gives Congress new tools to control spending by the executive branch. At the time, we didn't have a fight over raising the debt limit. In April 1979, Congress raises the federal debt limit with little time to spare before the federal government would have defaulted on payments for the first time in modern history. Technical and operational challenges that may or may not have been related contribute to a backlog at this Treasury Department, resulting in delayed payments on about $122 million in Treasury bills. One study found that this small technical default resulted in a permanent 0.6 percentage point increase in the interest rates on U.S. government debt. So because there was a standoff in 1979, and it looked like there was a chance that we would not raise the debt limit, the debt ceiling, until the very last moment, and because the Treasury Department delayed payments on about $122 million on already passed bills, it made our interest rate on all government debt go up. These are the type of things that happen when you do something so irresponsible as not raise the debt ceiling. In 1979, basically 1980, the new population was $227 million. The debt limit at the time was $879 billion, which is the equivalent of $3.1 trillion in 2023 dollars. That's something that's very interesting to keep track of. In 1980, that's when Reagan won the election. Everyone thought he was crazy and dumb at the time. Of course, they were correct. One of the worst presidents for politics and economics. So in 1980, basically our debt limit was 3.1 trillion. By 1985, it went up to 5.7 trillion. Now the population went up by about 10 million, but that's a big disparity between, you know, so this, this is when Reagan cut taxes. He also raised taxes 11 times. But this is the big tax cuts that he bragged about, that the Republicans bragged about. They still brag about it. Well, it sure raised our debt limit, <laughs> our, our debt, which means it raised our debt as well, unproportionately to the rise in population, by the way. So already in the mid-80s, this is when you know, the whole Reagan trickle-down economics began with those big tax cuts. Really, really a big problem. Now, this uh, also in 1980, 1979, the Gephardt Rule, named after House Majority Leader Dick Gephardt, is adopted by the U.S. House of Representatives. The rule allows the House to automatically raise the federal debt limit via the passage of a budget resolution that does not require a separate vote. For the first time, this procedure directly links federal borrowing authority to the budget decisions that required such borrowing. Before being repealed in 2011, the Gephardt Rule is used to pass 15 increases in the federal debt limit. Very important. So basically, because of that standoff that made our interest rates rise in 1979, the Gephardt Rule made it so that that wouldn't happen and there wouldn't have to be a big fight every time we needed to raise the debt ceiling. 
That was repealed in 2011 by the idiotic Tea Party Congress. And we're going to go on to see what historically happened in 2011. But first, we have some more things to talk about. In October 1986, policymakers formally authorized the Treasury Secretary to use extraordinary measures. That means the Treasury Secretary needs to decide what bills we're going to pay because if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we cannot pay all our bills. We currently, right now, are under extraordinary measures. Right now, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, is taking the extraordinary measures to try and fend off us totally defaulting on our bills. That's what the Republicans seem to want. In February 1996, nearing a breach in the debt limit, Congress passes a bill granting Treasury Department's special borrowing authority. So we're trying to find ways to avoid worldwide catastrophe because Republicans keep wanting to fight against raising the debt limit. There were government shutdowns in 1995 and 96 because of this. The United States federal government shutdowns of 95 and 96 were the result of conflicts between Democratic President Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress over funding for education, the environment, and public health in the 1996 federal budget. The first one was five days. The second one was 21 days. The government was shut down. The first shutdown occurred after Clinton vetoed the spending bill that Republican-controlled Congress sent him as Clinton opposed the budget cuts favored by Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, who you've heard of on this show, one of the most vile, evil, selfish, power-hungry pieces of filth to ever walk the earth. The first budget shutdown ended after Congress passed a temporary budget bill, but the government shut down again after Republicans and Democrats were unable to agree on a long-term budget bill. The second shutdown ended with congressional Republicans accepting Clinton's budget proposal. That's because we don't want to negotiate with terrorists. That's what the terrorists, a.k.a. Republicans, are trying to do now. They're holding the full faith and credit of the United States hostage and demanding that the Biden administration negotiate with them to cut Social Security and Medicare. That's what's going on today. The first of these two shutdowns in 1995 and 6 caused the furlough of about 800,000 workers, while the second caused about 284,000 workers to be furloughed. These are the types of things that happen. But the Republicans slash terrorists don't care. They don't care about government workers. They don't care about workers in general. By the way, talking about today, Mark Zandi, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, found a prolonged impasse over the debt ceiling would cost the U.S. economy up to 6 million jobs, wipe out as much as $15 trillion in household wealth, and send the unemployment rate to 9%. Right now it's at 3.5% because the Biden administration has done such a, a good job. It's a 50-year low, but this would cause us to go up to 9%. It would be a worldwide calamity. It would also be basically uh, unnecessary forced recession is another thing that would immediately happen, according to many analysts, including this guy. In 97, following a lengthy government shutdown, that shutdown I just told you about, the debt limit is increased to $6 trillion. Okay, so... Six trillion is the same as 11 trillion in today's dollars. So 25 years ago, we were at basically 11 trillion in today's dollars. Clinton put us into a surplus. So the era of balanced budgets began during the Clinton administration, but of course ended under the George W. Bush administration 
In June 2002, the era of balanced budgets comes to an end as policymakers return to deficit spending. The debt limit is increased to $6.4 trillion, the first increase since 97. So now we're going up to 2011 when the idiotic Tea Party comes in. There were no debt limit fights during the George W. Bush administration because he was a Republican. We had a Republican uh, Congress for most of the time. And when Democrats took over, they didn't fight about the debt limit because they know that's catastrophic and stupid. So in 2011, just days before the projected X date, which right now is coming up in probably June is what's predicted, that's when we can no longer pay our bills. So back in 2011, right before that date, Congress and the president enact the Budget Control Act of 2011, which initiates discretionary spending caps, creates the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, and ends the immediate debt limit impasse by authorizing a two-stage increase in the debt limit. I'm not going to do the numbers, but this, this fight about raising the debt limit caused the United States credit rating for the first downgrade in U.S. history. We had a top rating, and it got knocked down from AAA to AA+. S&P cites political brinksmanship as the reason for the downgrade. Thank you, Tea Party. February 2013, policymakers passed the No Budget, No Pay Act of 2013. This is led by idiots like Ted Cruz. In the fall of 2013, the X date is expected. In October 2013, the federal government undergoes a 16-day partial shutdown. The shutdown ends only when President Obama signs the Continuing Appropriations Act of 2014, just weeks away from the projected X date. The act provides a temporary solution to the government. Again, Obama trying to just avoid calamity. Worldwide calamity. So now let's talk about the Trump era. (laughs) In March of 2017, basically the second month that Trump is president, the debt limit is set at $19.8 trillion. At the end of the Trump administration, it is $27.7 trillion. This from Newsweek. During President Donald Trump's tenure in the White House, the national debt grew by some $7.8 trillion in his 2016 presidential campaign. Trump said he would get rid of the national debt during eight years in office. He left office after only four years, but he raised the debt, $7.8 trillion. In the whole history of the United States, Trump added 25% of all of our debt. In the history of the United States, in four years, he added 25% to the national debt. Believe it or not, I skipped a lot of details. This is all very complicated stuff. By the way, these Trump losses began mostly before COVID. Although much of the deficit spending under Trump came as a result of COVID stimulus, the debt was growing rapidly even before 2020. Uh, A lot of this was because of Trump's tax cuts. To the rich, to the wealthy, it hurt everyone else. The Congressional Budget Office projected in January of 2021 that the annual deficit would be about $1 trillion going forward due largely to Trump's tax cuts. Annual deficit would be $1 trillion going forward because of Trump's tax cuts. So he rose us from $19.8 trillion to $27.7 trillion in four years. Funny, this never happens under a Democratic president. Hmm. 
Obama had to clean up George W. Bush's mess. Biden has been having to clean up Trump's mess. Clinton cleaned up Reagan and the first Bush's mess, Hoover's mess, sending us into a, the Great Depression in the 1930s. And then Roosevelt came in and basically built the best economy the country ever had. That's what happens, back and forth and back and forth. The American people, for some stupid reason, vote Republicans into Congress. Republicans turn into terrorists who take hostages and send the world into economic hurt or calamity, and a Democratic president has to come in and clean it up over and over again. Let's take a break. You're listening to A Satellite View. I'm Todd Mickelson. We'll be right back. Todd Mickelson on a satellite view and been so serious lately, it seems like. Um, I thought we'd do a little bit of just some fun going down my Twitter feed where, you know, where I uh, save things, retweet things that I think are worth talking about. But first, I got to say today from the desk of David Han, who is the Minnesota Republican Party state chairman. I got a letter today. Dear Todd, Democrats in Minnesota and Washington, D.C. are trying to ram through their far-left socialist policies like unlimited, uncontrolled government spending, massive tax increases, wide-open borders, defunding the police, and the Green New Deal to satisfy their radical base. Uh, little does he know, I'm actually of that, what he would call radical base. <laughs> I've, I... I got my card, my membership card. He's thanking me for being such a great ongoing member. Uh, yeah, our best supporters like you, right here, right now, with our best supporters like you leading the way, Todd. We're launching our all-out drive to win big and carry Minnesota. Yeah, you're never going to carry Minnesota again. David Hahn, the worst and dumbest, well, I don't know about, I, well, po probably, state chair. This is money they're spending. There's uh, one printed page, a fully printed envelope, a return envelope, another printed card that's like a third of a page, and then a kind of really nice printed third of a page thing that includes my little, if I, it's a perforation on it so I can punch it out and carry it in my wallet. It's my 2023 membership card <laughs> to the Minnesota Republican Party. It's got a calendar on the back. Very thoughtful. I ran for the Minnesota State House of Representatives 10 and 8 years ago as a Democrat. I'm saying this because it's pretty hilarious. You know, the way that we keep track, there's something called the van, and the Republicans have their same version of the same thing. We try and get an idea of where people are at so that we can kind of plan on who to target when we're doing things like door knocking. It's not like, you know, a privacy issue. It doesn't go into any personal things. It's just basically this person was part of the, the DFL, if you're not in Minnesota, that's the Democratic Party in Minnesota. He was part of the Senate committee. 
which I was for years, for many years. I was part of the DFL Senate committee in my Senate district, and we keep track of all those things. I guess the Republicans don't. (laughs) So they spent, I would say, knowing about mailers, I would say this is $1.50 to $2 per mailer that they sent out. So they spent that much money on me. But uh, that means that they're, they, I don't know, are they mailing to everybody? <laughs> so it's not a very smart use of your money. And it just goes to show how dumb David Han is. And again, my theory that the Republican Party, especially in Minnesota, cannot raise money anymore. So they're desperate. You know, this is a fundraising letter, but they don't seem to have the infrastructure that they need to properly target who they're going to send this letter to. They should have never sent this to me. They should know there's absolutely no way that I'm going to send them any money. And they should know that I'm going to show this to every Democrat who's in the business to show, make sure that we keep track of what they're doing and what they're saying. They're giving away their messaging to me. You know, I'm like a spy now for the DFL in Minnesota just because they're so dumb. I mean... I And I think I'm pretty open. I've got this podcast. I am on AM 950 radio, a Twin Cities, you know, pretty good demographic, uh, high listen to radio station making fun of these people. And they sent me a letter trying to get money from me and sent me a membership card. I, I, I have worked for and, and been campaign manager for DFL candidates after I was a candidate. Very publicly, I was obviously. Anyway. Hilarious. Another thing that's kind of fun, if you remember, before the election, before the midterm election, I was following Simon Rosenberg and getting my information on making any type of predictions about the election. He's tweeting again. There's a lot of new information coming out about very deep dive numbers on the midterm election. But Simon Rosenberg is looking into all of this. There's, I mean, such deep information coming out that we know about how much money the party has. So here's, here's a uh, tweet from Simon Rosenberg. I don't think the national chatter has come to terms with how much money the Democratic candidates now have, how big and muscular their campaigns and grassroots ecosystem has become, driven by the fear of MAGA. It's a huge tactical advantage for us heading into 2024. He's the guy to listen to. He's very optimistic about 2024. He predicted the midterm elections of 2022 extremely accurately. He always had confidence, like I did. And my confidence grew because I got my information from people like Simon Rosenberg. Just a reminder, did you know when Bill Clinton banned assault weapons in 1994, mass shootings dropped by 43% after George W. Bush and the GOP let the assault weapons ban expire in 2004? Mass shootings increased by 245%. We have had more mass shootings than there are days in the year 2023 so far. Here's some good news. Adam Schiff, 13 years of Citizens United, more than $16.7 billion in 2022 election spending. That's why I introduced a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. Dark money has no place in our elections or democracy. It's time to return power to the people. That is how we get at all of these problems the Republicans are causing, including the whole debt ceiling, which in the last segment, okay, I talked about that way too much. 
Citizens United, money in politics, that's the problem. That's why we have economic problems of any kind, because of money in the wrong people's pockets. Jocelyn Benson goes on to say, she is the uh, Secretary of State in Michigan. She says, corporations are not people. Yet 13 years ago today, SCOTUS gave companies the same First Amendment rights as people and the right to spend unlimited anonymous dollars to influence politicians. I believe unlimited, anonymous, corporate spending corrupts our democracy. RT, if you agree, which I did. And then what do the Republicans do? They, they say, let's get rid of the income tax, and we're going to have a sales tax of 30%. Some studies show that a 30% sales tax would not make up for getting rid of the income tax. There is so much money in the country and the wealthy is so undertaxed. If they paid what they should be paying instead of anywhere from zero to maybe 12%, including corporations, we would have absolutely no problem having the best schools in the world, having mass transit across the country the way they do in Japan and places like that. We would have no problem having all solar. I mean, it would be a futuristic country. We would have no problem funding that. But this is the Republicans' idea. It's a harebrained idea. It's going to ruin our economy. Well, it's not going to ruin our economy because it's not going anywhere. It probably won't even pass in the House. Certainly won't pass in the Senate. And there's no way President Biden would sign it. It's a fantasy BS trick that they want to talk about in the next election. Hey, we tried to solve this problem. If this did go through, it would hit the poorest people the hardest and the middle class people the next hardest. The wealthy would save billions of dollars. They would just get more and more wealthy. That's all that would happen if they did that. Rick Scott considers running for president. <laughs> but... Apparently, DeSantis is scared to death of that. So, okay. Uh, you know what? We're out of time. I want to, in my next segment, we're, uh, we're going to talk about the Republicans uh, <laughs> who think they're going to run for president. I promise. This was such a deep dive into the debt ceiling that it took me a little more time than I wanted it to. I'm just doing this by myself while I'm still trying to hold up my small business, going in there, working every day, doing this in my free time. I was hoping to do episodes closer together, but I'm working on it, working on it, getting up to speed here at A Satellite View. Thank you for listening. I'm Todd Mickelson. You've been listening to A Satellite View with Todd Mickelson. Go to toddmickelson.com for links and more information.